Welcome the Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman cultivates a reputation as a reformer and an anti-corruption campaigner. We'll do a gut check on who he is and what he wants. In 2011, Stav Shafir helped lead protests on inequality in Israel. Then she became the youngest woman ever elected to the Knesset. I'll talk with her about equality and the future of Israel. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is making his first trip abroad as heir to the Saudi monarchy. He's in Egypt right now, he's in London tomorrow, and he comes to a visit to the U.S. next week. He's visiting President Trump, Apple, and Amazon. We're going to talk about MBS, as he's known, with Rashid Halidi, professor of Arab studies at Columbia University. Thanks for joining us, Rashid. Pleasure, Jerome. Did this guy really break the mold when it comes to the Saudi monarchy? Because I think if you look at his track record so far, and it's impressive, he's got Yemen under his belt, he's got a lot of new ideas, his anti-corruption purges, all the rest. It seems like this is a whole new ballgame. Well, it's a new ballgame on several levels. The first is that there has been a major shift in the way Saudi Arabia has been run since King Sinman took over. King Salman, when he was the governor of Riyadh, he was sort of the family disciplinarian. He was much respected. He ran one of the most efficient branches of government. Um, but he was one among a group of princes, each of major princes, each of whom had control of a chunk of the government. So the family of Prince Sultan controlled the defense ministry. The family of King Abdullah controlled the National Guard. The family of King Faisal controlled the foreign ministry and so forth. What King Salman and Mohammed bin Salman, his son, have done is to completely centralize power under the king, essentially in the hands of Mohammed bin Salman, because the king is not a particularly effective ruler at this stage. His memory is not very good. Uh, he's ailing. Uh, he's still there, and his power is vital to establishing Mohammed bin Salman. But essentially, the man running things is a 31-year-old with no experience doing anything ever in his life before. So we have a brand new ballgame. We no longer have these powerful branches of the family, each controlling and benefiting from a major chunk of the government. There were six or five, depending on how you count them, branches of the family, each of which really controlled a huge budget and a major branch of government. Mohammed bin Salman has brought everything under his control. The defense ministry, the national guard, the interior ministry, the security forces, uh, the intelligence service, everything is now in his hands. And this is unprecedented. Um, how does this going play, back to the early days of the kingdom. How does this play into things like the anti-corruption probe that we saw in the news, you know, locking up uh, a lot of numbers, uh, members of the royal family, while at the same time we see all these leaks about the kind of things that he buys, the yachts, the homes in France, all sorts of stuff? I think that we have to be really careful when we use some of the terms that the media is and the public relations firms and the high-priced consultants that the Saudis have on retainer are trying to make us use. 
The idea that this is an anti-corruption campaign is, I think, uh, mistaken. Uh, you just pointed out he has purchased a painting, a yacht, and a palace for $1.5 billion. How can we be talking about corruption or anti-corruption uh, when the crown prince is, is out there buying half-billion-dollar trinkets? And he bought so the yacht on a is, whim. He bought, yeah, this he is, bought the this yacht is, when he saw it. This is not an anti-corruption campaign. What this is is a campaign to bring the royal family and the private sector and the many, many people who worked with the royal family to enrich themselves under control. It's a political campaign uh, to centralize power, centralize decision-making, centralize money uh, in the hands of one man, which is Mohammed bin Salman. We're talking about Mohammed bin Salman with Rashid Halidi from uh, Columbia University. And just before Mohammed bin Salman left Saudi Arabia, he seemed to clean the slate of the military leaders in Saudi Arabia. And obviously, the war in Yemen is not going well. But this is kind of an indication of how he is going to wield his power. He is going to clean slate and do stuff like that. Yeah, he's done this on a number of levels. He's done this in the security services. He's done this in the Ministry of the Interior, Intelligence Service, the Army a couple of times. Um, my understanding was that when he first gave the military the order to prepare for the Yemen war, um, he was told by the high command, this is not a great idea. We're not sure we can do this. And he just fired them all and brought in a new team. So presumably this is the second new team that he's brought in. Uh, the war is not going well, and the war will not go well, because Yemen is a very hard country to control. Uh, it's one of the few countries in the world where an entire Roman army disappeared. Two legions marched into Yemen and never never were heard of again. We don't know what happened to them. It's one of the three great defeats in Roman <laughs> military history, except we don't know exactly what happened. They disappeared. The Ottomans couldn't control Yemen. It's not an easy country to control. Like Afghanistan, it's a country you do not want to invade. And Saudi Arabia is not going to be able uh, in the long run to win a, an outright military victory. If they're smart, what they'll end up doing is cutting a deal. But they don't show any sign of being able or willing to do that just yet. The war does seem to be popular within Saudi Arabia. He seems to have Saudis convinced that we are in a epic uh, struggle for existence with Iran, and this is a big part of it, and people seem to buy that in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I would be very careful talking about public opinion in Saudi Arabia. That may be true. The news reports that we read from the journalists who are allowed to go there, and you know, you can't wander around and do public opinion surveys in Saudi Arabia. All of this is impressionistic. The news reports we read do seem to indicate that, and if it's true, which it may be, it indicates the level of brainwashing of Saudis about Iran and Shiaism, which has reached an absolutely toxic level over many, many, many years. This is not just the doing of Mohammed bin Salman. Decades of propaganda and of teaching people uh, a certain version, a very narrow-minded anti-Shia version of Islam, have gone into creating the Iranian bogeyman. There is some real concern if you're a Saudi, if you're a member of an absolute monarchy like the Saudi regime, uh, as far as Iran is concerned. Iran is a huge country, uh, has three or four times the population of Saudi Arabia. It is a very technically advanced country. It's manufacturing missiles. It can build almost any kind of military equipment, it manufactures cars. It has industry. It has a highly educated population, a highly productive population. And it's a country that has an enormous capability to project power, which is why many countries in the region are very concerned about it, worried about it. It's a midget compared to a country like Israel or the United States, but 
for Saudi Arabia, a country which historically has not been able to protect itself domestically or externally without American support, Iran causes a great deal of fear for the regime. Another reason, it's a powerful country with ability to project power and a large country with a big technological base. Another reason for concern is that Saudi Arabia can, claims to be an Islamic country, claims to have a perfect Islamic regime. Well, the Iranians claim the same thing. So they're rivals. Uh, they're the two most visibly Islamic uh, regimes on earth. And the difference is Iran, for all of the fact that it is a theocracy, that it has a, an Islamic constitution, that it has a guardian council, that it has a very large number of fundamentally anti-democratic institutions, is a republic and has elections. And so for Saudis, especially for the Saudi regime, which is an absolute monarchy which does not allow political parties, unions, a free press, public gatherings, uh, now they're going to allow entertainment. But a meeting, a demonstration, that's not allowed. These things are fearsome. Uh, even though Iran is by no means a real democracy, the fact that it has the trappings of a democracy, the fact that people actually do vote and that those votes have some impact on uh, outcomes uh, is another reason why they worry a lot about Iran. And then finally, there's this religious thing, which the Saudis have been pumping and pumping and pumping. In fact, both countries, both Saudi Arabia and Iran, have used religion as a weapon uh, of their foreign policy for many, many years. Iran, since the Islamic Revolution, and Saudi Arabia since the Cold War back in the 60s. Rashid, it seems to have had such great effect on the Middle East. We just saw um, Saudi Arabia yank the prime minister out in Lebanon. Uh, he's retooled the relationship with Egypt after the Muslim Brotherhood was in power. He's dropping off a, a mega city while he's in Egypt visiting before he goes to London. He's got the old Sunni axis uh, back together again. I think that's completely false. The idea that there is a Sunni axis implies that Sunnis all over the Arab world are following this absolute autocracy. And I don't think that's true. There's an axis of monarchs in the Persian Gulf, which is to say Saudi Arabia and the Emirates with their satrapy of Bahrain, a country that they just had to take over because the Shiite majority rose up during the Arab Spring and Saudi troops had to march in and put down that revolt. Those two countries have lined up with large payments of cash, countries like Egypt and other countries. That doesn't mean that the Egyptian people or, or for that matter, the Saudi people or any of these peoples has any voice in these decisions. This is not a Sunni axis. This is an axis of absolute Sunni monarchies in the Gulf which have purchased the alignment for the moment of some other countries. Uh, the idea that Sunnis all over the Middle East uh, believe Saudi propaganda about Iran and Shiism is a mistaken one. There are many people who've been influenced by it. I mean, I know people all over the Middle East who say the weirdest things about Shia, uh, Shiism and Iran, meaning that that propaganda has had some effect. But it's not true of everybody. And it's not true, I would argue, of majorities of people in, in many, many of the countries whose governments are aligned with Saudi Arabia. Well, we're going to see Mohammed bin Salman come to the United States, and he's going to make a cross-country tour. He's going to visit Apple. He's going to visit Amazon. There's an article I was reading in The American Conservative the U.S. Saudi lobby is in overdrive ahead of Prince Mohammed bin Salman's roadshow. What do you expect? I mean, he's in a way, uh, if he's bought an axis there, he's trying to buy a lot of stuff here. He's trying to buy nuclear reactors. He's trying to buy high tech. He's cutting very deeply here. 
That nuclear reactor issue is very, very important. People should pay attention to it. Um, back in the 60s, President Johnson allowed Israel to steal uranium and build a nuclear weapon and did nothing to stop it. President Obama managed to restrain Iran's uh, nuclear military capabilities. Whether the United States sells Saudi Arabia technology or another country sells Saudi Arabia technology, which enables Saudi Arabia to enrich uranium or otherwise produce the material for a nuclear weapon is an issue that's very important for the future of the world. It's as important as any country in the Middle East getting nuclear weapons. Israel having them, Iran getting them, Saudi Arabia getting them, Egypt, any other country in the region getting them is a big issue. And in the case of Saudi Arabia in particular, this is a big issue because this is an absolute monarchy. Uh, one man makes decisions. And should that regime prove unstable for any reason, uh, you would have nuclear weapons in the hands of an unstable regime. And that's only part of his visit. I mean, he has many, many other things he's going to be doing in the United States. What do you make of his relationship with the Trump administration? Donald Trump came right in, uh, cozied right up to the Saudis. They went after Qatar and are kind of reshaping the situation there. Yeah, um, it is very unfortunate to see the United States led by someone who is so vulnerable to um, being flattered, who is so uh, uh, moved by glitz and glitter. The Saudi regime, and you just have to look at a picture of kings and men receiving somebody. Look at the rooms in which they sit. Look at the guilt. We have an expression for the style. Louis Farouk, you know, Louis XV, King Farouk. It's incredibly vulgar style. This is exactly the kind of thing that appeals to the president. This is exactly the kind of thing. Enormous wealth, excess, vulgarity, ostentatious display. These are his people, <laughs> his kind of people, I should say. Um, there are other things he likes. He obviously finds something appealing in Prime Minister Netanyahu. He obviously finds something appealing in Vladimir Putin. But among the many things that this man likes is ostentatious display. And the Saudis are probably the best people in the world at that. So it's a meeting made in heaven. Also, this is a president whose business has depended on investments by others. He's gone bankrupt multiple times. And each time he's come out of it, what he's had to do is to pull together investment from a bunch of other people who basically put the money into things that he then slapped his name on. And that's one reason that I think we should be concerned. It means that he and his son-in-law, another real estate tycoon, uh, Jared Kushner, are uniquely vulnerable to people who have lots of money that they could or might invest. The United States has had a long relationship with Saudi Arabia. How should we think about recalibrating it? If we see a lot of things we don't like about Saudi Arabia, what goes on? I mean, the, the war in Yemen, I know that there's a move in Congress to get the War Power Act started on the, the war in Yemen and get the U.S. out of its relationship in Yemen. But it seems like it's just overwhelmed by the Saudi, Saudi lobby. Well, Saudi Arabia is the oldest and most important ally the United States has in the Middle East. It's one of the oldest allies the United States has in the world. It's not quite an ally. It's more of a client state. But it is the oldest relationship the United States has in the Middle East. It long antedates the establishment of Israel. It goes back to President Roosevelt in the 1930s and the original deal for Aramco in 1933. And that was because everybody realized that this was an enormously important country strategically and had these vast oil reserves. President Roosevelt had been Secretary of the Navy. He knew a lot about oil, how important it was. He was Secretary of the Navy during World War I. He oversaw the transformation of the U.S. fleet from uh, coal to oil. He understood the strategic value of it. 
and he, in the last weeks of his life, made the painful and difficult visit to meet with King Abdelaziz, King Salman's father, in uh, 1945 in Egypt, because he understood the importance of this. So Saudi Arabia is a very important country to the United States. The problem, of course, is that Saudi Arabia is the antithesis of every American ideal, uh, human rights, democracy, social liberation, everything the United States stands for, uh, supposedly. Saudi Arabia is the antithesis. Uh, yes, it is a force for stability. What that means is repression of democracy and popular feelings all over the Arab world, which is what Saudi Arabia has been doing since it became the dominant power in the Arab world back in the 1970s. And that has apparently suited people in Washington. I don't think it should suit us as American citizens because I personally am an opponent of monarchy. We, The United States was established in opposition to an absolute monarchy, the British monarchy. And supposedly the United States has as one of its ideals, a Republican form of government, democracy, human rights, and so forth. Saudi Arabia is the antithesis of every value the United States stands for, is and has been in particular in the years in which it became an important ally during the Cold War and after. Moreover, it's the fountainhead of perhaps the most dangerous ideology in the world, which is a a particularly virulent form of Sunni Islam, out of which Groups like Al-Qaeda and, and the Islamic State have taken the core of their thinking. That's not to say that these are outgrowths of Saudi policy, although sometimes the Saudis have used them for their ends, as has the United States, as, has, as have other countries. And it's a particularly intolerant, narrow, mean-spirited uh, version of Islam. Uh, some people would describe it as a heresy, actually. And it is the fountainhead for the thinking of many, many groups, uh, virulently anti-Shia groups, groups that are anti-Christian and anti-Jewish. Al-Qaeda was established, among others, by uh, Osama bin Laden, who was a Saudi and who was very much influenced by these kinds of ideas. Well, part of the idea Uh, about Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is that he's pushing back against the religious authorities in Saudi Arabia, and he's shock therapy, there is reform, women are going to drive in in June, and he's a reformer, and that's why he's popular, is he's making Mm -hmm. the changes. Everybody thinks Mm -hmm. we should welcome that. I mean, I'm very happy to see the grip of the religious establishment loosened. I'm very happy to see social reforms in Saudi Arabia. But to say that he is a reformer, again, involves some mental gymnastics. He is a reformer in the sense that exactly as you said, they've limited the power of the religious establishment. They've cut back on some of the more obnoxious, repressive features of the regime insofar as treatment of women and so forth are concerned. But this is all in the name of a policy which is not liberal of a fundamentally illiberal policy of absolute monarchy, where the citizens have no voice in anything that happens in the country. No decisions about money, about spending, about the $2 billion he just spent on a few trinkets are accessible to the people. They have no representation. So he's making enormous strides in terms of social reform, but without any guarantee, with the assurance that this is meant to even further centralize power in the hands of not just one family, but one man, which I wouldn't call reform. I would call it social reform. I would call it religious reform. And those things in and of themselves, of course, are good. But they are meant to distract the Saudi people from demanding a say over this vast wealth, which the royal family arrogates to itself exactly as it pleases. Who tells the crown prince, don't buy your Leonardo painting? Nobody. (laughs) Uh, Well, can the head of Apple or Amazon, do they have to roll out the red carpet for this guy because he buys stuff? Does everybody just have to do that? Well, I mean, that's exactly the situation. In Britain and France and in the United States, you're going to see every corporation, every government leader fawning over these people 
because of just what you said. There are contracts there. There is money. There are jobs. Saudi Arabia has the best and biggest lobby in Washington of any foreign country, even bigger in some ways than the Israeli lobby. I mean, it doesn't have this kind of popular support that the Israeli lobby has. But it has lobbying and, and lawyering and PR firms on steroids, as do the Emiratis, as do the Qataris. Um, these governments take care of themselves in Washington by, uh, A, buying influence, and B, by buying stuff. I mean, if you're in the defense industry, if you're in the oil industry, if you're in the banking industry, if you're in the aerospace industry, and if you're in software or hardware, IT, anything, security, you name it, these are hugely important markets. So they don't just have the big battalions of the $12,000 an hour lawyers and the PR firms and the former politicians. They have every major oil company, every major aerospace company, every major defense company out there shilling for them because of the contracts that are going to come their way. Well, I hope everybody enjoys Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. He's in Egypt now. He's going to London tomorrow. He comes to visit President Trump and Apple and Amazon in the U.S. next week. Thanks for joining me and talking about his visit. Rashid Holiday, Professor of Arab Studies at Columbia University. It was a pleasure, Jerome. Thank you. Stav Shafir became the youngest woman ever elected to the Israeli Knesset in 2013. I'll talk with her about equality and the future of Israel after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Stav Shafir is a member of the Israeli Knesset. She rose to prominence during the social justice protests in Israel during 2011, and she subsequently chose to run for parliament with the Labor Party and became the youngest woman ever elected to the Knesset. And she has specialized in corruption while she's there. Nice to meet you. Hi. Great to be here. Remind people what the social justice protests were all about. In 2011, um, I was back then not very interested in politics uh, or in being myself in politics. I was an activist from a very young age. But politics was perceived for me, as it is perceived for many young people, I could say the majority of young people, um, is very distant from them as sometimes corrupt and not really serving our needs. And in 2011, I was a student working as a journalist full-time, working a lot, still unable to pay my rent in a house share, in a crumbling house share in Tel Aviv. Uh, rent prices went up and up. And for an entire generation in Israel, the idea of ever being able to buy a house became um, very much a fantasy rather than something that could actually be accomplished. And in 2011, as an activist, I organized many protests before. Most of them were a failure. And you saw always the same people on the streets protesting about everything. If it was environmental or political issues, the very same people. And people kept telling us that it was impossible to make people get out to the streets to try to influence their lives. 
And it's something that we hear a lot everywhere. But then something changed. We decided that this time we're not going to just protest holding signs in front of some empty governmental building. We're going to actually go to live on the streets in tents. And we pitched the tents in the center of Tel Aviv. The day after, I got calls, phone calls from everywhere in Israel, and people wanted to pitch tents in other cities. Uh, Without noticing, we became 120 different tent camps. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis went to the street to protest. At the peak of the protest, it was, if to give you the American equivalent in numbers, to just imagine 19 million Americans rallying together, shouting, the people demand social justice. And very quickly, we realized that this was not a protest about housing prices anymore. It was a protest about our home and what Israel is supposed to be as our home. What our country that has the ethos that we never leave anybody behind, that we always take care for each other. But how much it changed over the years, and especially in the last two decades with mainly right-wing governments, that took our country to a different place. Well, is this about inequality or is this about what exactly? You know, in the late 70s, Israel was one of the most equal countries. The Ben-Gurion governments in 1951, that's when Israel was three years old, after the independence war that took the lives of 1% of the population, and without any money or financial resources and with enormous lack of security, One of the first things that the government did was to legislate the free education bill, saying that every child deserves of fair education, whether if he's Jewish or Arab, uh, religious or secular. That was one of the core values of Israel in strong relation to our security, to the future of our society. And that has changed. The governments that came in the last 20 years, especially since Prime Minister Rabin uh, was the head, the chair of my party, of the Labour Party, was assassinated, took Israeli economy to a completely different place with less responsibility, with less planning and strategy for our future. Socioeconomic gaps reached a peak level. Today, we're between number one and two in the OECD countries in socioeconomic gaps, uh, number one in the OECD in poverty. And this is so far away from the original vision of our country. And it's very much in, opposite, in opposition to everything that Israelis feel about themselves. Israelis care about each other. And we really want our country to be a true home for all of us. You know, when we're 18, almost all of us go, uh, including myself, go to the army to serve our country and are willing to put a lot in order to uh, take care of Israel's future. It's part of our lives. And in the same way, the contract that we have with our country, with our government, demands the same responsibility coming from our politicians. And we felt that our politicians lost that sense of responsibility. So we went out to the streets for that. I'm talking with Stav Shafir, a member of the Israeli Knesset, and we're recalling the social justice protests of 2011. And you decided to get into politics after that, after you became a spokesperson for that. And what's going on? I mean, you've got all these young people in the streets who seem to agree with you and and the kind of things you're saying about equality and the way things are going. But at the same time, I think everybody in the U.S. seems Israel is going to the right the last 20 years. And the polls on uh, young people today, um, here's one from a couple years ago that says new survey finds 59% of high school students consider themselves right wing. Only 13% identify as left wing. 
And 48 percent polled say no to the question, do you think Arab Israelis should be represented in the Knesset? Uh, that's a pretty biting thing. Uh, are you um, a unicorn? Do you feel like a unicorn? When I decided to get into politics, I did that knowing that I will find probably a lot of corruption in politics and I will have to fight it. Also, I was very curious about the idea of how much I will be able to change from within politics. I didn't know the answer to that. But I felt seeing that young people my age, I was 26 when I ran for office, and seeing people my age avoiding politics, being discussed by politics, actually, I felt we didn't have the privilege to not be in the places where the most important decisions about our lives are being made. Now, in Israel, yes, we have a right-wing government. I'm in the opposition. I disagree with this government on many, many things. But the one thing that I disagree with it most is the fact that this government tries to educate us that the status quo is the best thing that we can have. In a way, the message that this government has to young generation, to young people, is you should be thankful for being alive and shut up about everything else. This is very far away from the idea of Zionism and from the idea that brought my grandparents to come from Iraq and Lithuania and Poland and Romania and come and fight in order to build Israel. They decided, after so many years of fear and trauma of the Holocaust and of having to fight for their home, they decided that they're going to take destiny in their own hands. They're going to take control over their lives. That was the decision of the Jewish people that made Israel come true. And today, our government, over the most important questions to our future, being the conflict with the Palestinians, the two-state solution that I believe we have to fight for, the question of religion and state, separation of religion and state in Israel, or synagogue and state in Israel, and in our social questions, our government decides not to answer them. You know, they're using, they're manipulating a lot with um, fear, uh, manipulating over our uh, past traumas, uh, and of the very understood fear that Israelis have because we live in a very tough neighborhood and we do have security threats all the time. But I think this is against the idea of Zionism because we can look at these challenges and say, okay, that's it, so let's just sit at our home and be afraid of everything. Or we can decide to take destiny in our hands, like our grandparents did, and to decide what future we want to have. Yes, we have a conflict with the Palestinians. It's been going on for a very long time. My generation grew up into the first intifada and then the second intifada and into um, losing friends and family to suicide bombings and being constantly in fear. However, we know that we should end this. We understand that it's in our security and national interest to have a two-state solution, to separate from the Palestinians, to have one state for them, one state Israel for us and a clear border between us. And we have to decide, and that's what the progressive camp is fighting for, that because it's in our interest, we don't give any excuses to not being able to solve it. We're just going ahead and finding a solution. When you were talking about what the government says to young people in Israel, uh, how do you think that plays in the United States to young Jewish people in the United States? Because the polls here say that they relate less and less to Israel, that their parents' generation has a different attitude than they do. I've met some that are in the BDS movement now. How do you see that unfolding? 
Yeah, well, actually, that's the reason that I came here to Chicago. I'm speaking at universities and trying to talk to the young generation, both the Jewish and the non-Jewish people uh, and students here. And yes, I see what you're describing. We feel it everywhere. And of course, Israel is, in my view, Israel is supposed to be the capital of Judaism. It's supposed to be where Judaism flourishes and, and is open to all streams of Judaism and allows every Jew to feel free and to feel at home and also is very respectful towards the practice of other religions that see their sacred places in Israel as well. That's supposed to be the story. However, young people um, outside of Israel and from the Jewish community do not feel very much connected to Netanyahu's government. We see in the last few years that Israel is becoming more and more a partisan issue in the States, which is a danger to our strategic and security interests. In fact, these people who are today at universities in 10 and 15 years' time, they will sit in influential positions and they will take decisions that will influence Israel and it will influence the cooperation uh, and the very close cooperation that there always was between Israel and the U.S., And we have to keep that close connection. When I see that some of them think that there are two ways to uh, support Israel, uh, one of them is to just agree with everything that Prime Minister Netanyahu says. And if they don't agree with that, so some of them think that they should go and collaborate with um, terrible initiatives like the BDS, the Boycott Israel. What they don't understand is that by doing that, they're actually harming the possibility of us reaching a two-state solution. The boycott movement is um, making Israelis go farther to the right. It's actually, absurdly, but it's actually helping the right wing in Israel because it distances the progressive sides from each other. It breaks down the progressive camp uh, in Israel and, and the cooperation of the progressive camp with other progressives abroad. And it is being manipulated by the Israeli right to show Israelis, oh, you see, the world doesn't really understand our security interests. They're actually against us. They don't recognize our right to exist. And really, in the core movement of the BDS, there are actual anti-Semitic voices and organizations. And all of them are harmful for Israel, and they're especially harmful for the idea of a two-state solution. So what I offer young people here, if they want a two-state solution, and if they care for Israel, and they care for Israelis, they should come and help the progressive camp. They should be part of rebuilding the progressive camp. And we have so much work to do. We have so much work to do in unionizing our political bloc in order to fight the right in building and creating new ideas in order to connect with the majority of the public, in organizing. And here in Chicago, there's a long history of social and political organizing that the Jewish community uh, took a major part in. And we need to learn and share these ideas and create more cooperation if we want to see the two-state solution come in earlier. Stav Shafir is a member of the Israeli Knesset. She's with Israel's Labor Party. We'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking with Stav Shafir, a member of the Israeli Knesset from the Labor Party. She rose to prominence during the social justice protests in Israel during 2011 and became the youngest woman ever elected to the Knesset. And she has specialized in corruption while she's there. I imagine a lot of young people who you meet here have given up on the two-state solution, and you have a hard time convincing them that that is a realistic goal (laughs) for what's happening. And equality, you talk so eloquently about equality, they see a one-state solution as being a better chance for equality among all people. Is that wrong? A one-state solution means that you will see two people who have a lot of hatred and lack of trust towards each other, two peoples who have been fighting and are traumatized from this conflict, and you'll see them just bleeding into each other for decades to come. This will not be not a moral solution and not a secure solution for any of the sides. It will definitely not be in Israel's interest uh, for security and in our interest to have a state that is Jewish, democratic, equal to all of its citizens, which means a Jewish majority. And annexation of the West Bank means that there will be three million Palestinians more um, inside Israel. Israel will have to choose between keeping its democratic uh, culture to keeping its Jewish identity and equality. And this means that the Zionist dream will be lost. It's not a solution. We will see only more people dying from this conflict because of that. The best solution for both sides is the two-state solution. And as an Israeli, I have to tell you that the two-state solution is the real continuation of the Zionist movement. And that's our ability to take our destiny in our own hands. Now, Ben-Gurion once said that in Israel, to be a realist, you have to believe in miracles. Israel is a miracle. And more than everything, it's the idea that the most impossible dreams can come true. That's what our grandparents did. That's supposed to be in the core. And it's in the core things that Israel is doing today that um, our economy is based on, our ability to be such a successful startup nation uh, that brings a lot of initiative to the world is because our way of thinking and something in our DNA is about how to constantly think outside of the box and how to find the most creative solutions to our challenges. That's what keeps us alive. We can find the solution to the conflict. You know, we all know what the solution is going to look like. It's been obvious for decades now. What we need is a courageous leadership to be able to take these steps forward. We need a leadership that is really basing its ideas on hope, and on pragmatism rather than on fear. It's very simple. And this um, phenomenon that we see in Israel, we see everywhere around the world. We see politicians and leaders who are trying to convince of the public based on fear. We know that. But this is not Israel. Israel is a place that's based, fully based on hope. And that's what me and my generation are trying to get back into politics. I'm talking with Stav Shafir, a member of the Israeli Knesset from the Labor Party, You seem like such a polite person. I can't believe you got suspended from the Knesset for (laughs) name-calling. It's not exactly for name-calling, and it's not very funny. I was, since I got into Knesset, into parliament, I dedicated my time uh, to fighting corruption. As a young, very young politician, I sat on the finance committee of Knesset, um, being the only woman, uh, the youngest in parliament, 20 years younger than the other youngest person. And 
seeing all of these very experienced politicians, I sat there and I tried to learn the methods of how the, our budget or our state budget was organized. Within a few months, I discovered a series of corruption stories in our state budget. I discovered and I exposed a chain of corruption in the way that the finance committee worked, a secret system that Israelis didn't know about and that politicians used in order to transfer money into political hands and political interests rather than into social services, into our hospitals and schools and, and everything that Israelis thought that their tax money was supposed to be going to. And I decided to open up that system. And doing so, I put myself in a certain risk. Other politicians advised me to stop doing what I was doing because I was um, risking myself. I got threats. I got all sorts of um, attempts to stop me from doing what I was doing. But together with the public and with social networks that allowed me to share everything that happened on the committee online, we won that fight. We made the Israeli budget completely transparent. We changed the law of the finance committee and we prevented and stopped corruption in hundreds of millions of Israeli shekels. Uh, when I got reelected, I got elected number um, second on the labor list. I demanded to start a transparency committee in parliament. And with that transparency committee, I was also asked by the OECD organization um, to start another committee in the OECD organization where we have 90 parliaments from Jordan to Argentina participating in fighting against corruption and creating integrity and, and transparency in the way that politics works. And yes, when you are engaged in these kind of fights, you're being threatened and by people who will always try to stop you in order to keep the old uh, methods of how they were using public money for their own political interests. And that's what uh, they tried to do to me also in Knesset recently, uh, trying to suspend me over calling a corrupt politician corrupt. I don't believe that fighting corruption can That's be done. That's an adjective. Done. That's not a name. What? That's an adjective. <laughs> it's not a name. I don't believe that fighting corruption can be done in a polite way. Uh, who, you have who to was, call it. When you see it, you have to call it in its name. Who was the corrupt politician? He's a politician from the Likud party, from Netanyahu's party, who in a few cases in parliament used his power in order to take care of his own personal interests. Now, these things are destructive for politics this kind of political uh, corruption, it's, of course, damaging and hurting, you know, public money or tax money that could go and be invested in, in, in uh, for Israelis and not for these corrupt politicians. But the second thing that it creates, it distances good people from politics. It sends out a message that the political system is just corrupt and people should not be part of that. Now, this is not how things will work for the better. We can't, we don't have the, the time, you know, or the privilege to just excuse this kind of system. We have to fight it. Israel has a lot of big decisions to take. And these decisions should be made very quickly if it's about how our society works and, and of religion and state separation, issues that the Jewish community here is also um, very troubled with. And it's mostly and more than everything else, it's the conflict in our security. We have to make these decisions. So we need to clean our political system from politicians who are not there to make decisions for the public and to make sure that whoever is there in our leadership is one that can be truly a leader. The prime minister 
faces corruption charges in Israel now. There uh, seems to be a divided opinion about whether he has a short or longer time left in office. What do you think? First of all, I trust our police and um, law authorities to investigate and to give us answers uh, as quickly as possible about these kind of stories. I think that, you know, I'm from the opposition and I'm not really a friend of Netanyahu's, but I will be very sad to see our prime minister um, charged with this kind of, of corruption. I think it's very sad for every country, regardless of whether you're in the coalition or the opposition. You don't want to see your leadership going that way. And it gives the wrong idea to people. And I think it sends out the wrong idea about Israel to other people. And I'm telling you, I'm very proud of my country and, and very proud of Israelis. There is a distance, there is a gap between where the Israeli public is and where our government is. The Israeli public in the last few years has risen to fight for a much better Israel. We see since the protest movement in 2011, we see hundreds, hundreds of groups trying to build a new society that is using our heterogeneity uh, as a source of power, that is um, creating much more equality, that is fighting for a much cleaner politics. It's an incredible and a really inspiring movement. Um, Israelis are courageous and they want to see much more cooperation with the global community. And they really take the idea of tikkun olam, that is a very strong idea in Judaism, as part of, the, of their mission in life, to make our country better, to make the world better, to do everything that we can in order to, to fight for the better of things. And our government is um, very distant and very different from what Israelis would want uh, as a path. So now you will ask me, so how come they win the elections? And the reason that this happens is actually because of the progressive camp. We have a multiple party system. You guys here are so lucky to have a two-party system. Seriously. <laughs> I know you, you, you have complaints about that, but you're so lucky. We have a multiple party system, which means that in a country with such a dynamic society like Israel, we have 80% Jewish, 20% Arab Israelis, about 15% ultra-Orthodox community that is more um, segregated and less open to the general public. And sadly, all of these different groups are going into different parties. And sometimes, in most cases, it makes politics much more sectarian-based rather than being able to take care for the best of the entire society. And what happened in the progressive camp is that instead of fighting against the right by being united, we're divided into four to five different parties. So the right wing, Netanyahu's party, goes to the election in one to two parties who, who cooperate and go together. And the left is going to the elections in four to five different parties. Mathematically, you can't win if you do it this way. And the responsible thing to do is to unite and create one big political block that will go to the next election and say, we're willing, we're doing the responsible thing, putting our egos aside and doing the responsible thing in order to take care for Israel. And if we do that, we have even today in the current system enough seats to win, but we have to go together. Our division in the progressive camp is serving the right. And this is something that was there for a too long time. I'm telling you, the young generation of our party is expecting the leadership of our parties to do this responsible act. 
Stav Shafir is a member of the Israeli Knesset. She is with the Labor Party, and she is specialized in corruption while she's there. She rose to prominence during the social justice protests in Israel during 2011. Great talking with you. With you, too. Thank you so much. Last month, several senior employees at Oxfam were accused of paying for sex in the wake of a 2010 earthquake in Haiti. It's the latest in a string of scandals that have tarnished the reputation of international development organizations. Certainly, the United Nations has been involved in sex scandals before. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk with the Code Blue campaign. They aim to end impunity for sexual exploitation and abuse by aid personnel. And we'll meet the organization's co-founder tomorrow on Worldview. If you missed our segment on African migrants in China last week or maybe the show about uh, the Muslim-American young adult novelist, don't worry. You can always subscribe to the Worldview podcast. Go to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you could clip, clip, uh, subscribe at wbez.org slash worldview. Go ahead. Check out Worldview online. It's there at wbez.org slash worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering and Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.